If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Laura Johnson, I think there's something to what you said yesterday about Wordle. I got it on the second try today, and I thought I won the lottery, but I didn't post it on social media. See, see? Yeah, I know. It's so weird. My wife's done that a couple of times, but I never did. And it was like, wow. Did you post it to social media? No, no. no, But I'm talking (laughs) about it here. He's just putting the whole world on the podcast. It's kind of the same thing. Daddy got it on the second try. God. All right. The news podcast discussion. From Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin, who just all love to give me the hardest time possible. <laughs> so let's, let's give them a hard time and ask them some tough questions. What did a federal judge have to say to Matt Borges, who is in charge or who is charged in the state's biggest ever bribery scandal, about his demand for statements provided to the government by two of his fellow defendants? And Layla, are we really going to have to wait until <laughs> next year for the trial? These guys were charged 18 months ago. I know. It does seem like we're going to have to wait. But, you know, to answer your first question, uh, U.S. District Judge Timothy Black refused to allow Borges's defense attorneys to obtain statements that political strategist Jeffrey Longstreth and lobbyist Juan Caspedes gave authorities. And these are statements that Borges believes would absolve him of involvement in the House Bill 6 scandal. Longstreth and Caspedes were the first to plead guilty to racketeering charges, and they're awaiting their sentencing. But Borges, meanwhile, is accused of being the key middleman in the scheme, especially to to fight off a referendum attempt that never reached the ballot. Prosecutors said he paid $15,000 in the summer of 2019 to a staffer working for the repeal campaign in exchange for inside information. That staffer wore a wire and cooperated with investigators before just said that that money was for some future project unrelated to House Bill 6. And he maintains that he didn't know about the $60 million House Bill 6 bribe and that Caspedes and Longstreth can, can corroborate that. And he says that their statements will negate his involvement in the conspiracy. But Black dismissed the, the pleading on Tuesday. And he says that, you know, Borges's attempt is speculative. He wrote that prosecutors are aware of their obligations to provide any information that would help his defense. And he said that forcing the prosecutors to turn over the statements by Caspedes and Longstreth is, is unwarranted. And he also refused to release the grand jury testimony of, of FBI agent Blaine Wetzel, who had drafted this 81-page affidavit that outlined the racketeering charges in the case. The defense attorneys claimed that Wetzel made false and misleading statements about Borges in, in the document, and they were seeking the agent's grand jury testimony. But Black said, there's nothing to suggest that Wetzel's statements were misleading or incorrect. So so this is a, a setback to Matt Borges and his defense in this case. Well, what the judge is saying is that the federal prosecutors are giving you what they're supposed to give you. Right. And so I'm taking it on faith. This doesn't affect you. It It, it is interesting that the the judge is allowing that. I, I suspect the prosecutors are arguing 
this is a continuing investigation and we have information in these statements that implicates other people mm-hmm. that haven't been charged mm-hmm. yet or could be charged. And we don't want this out in the atmosphere. We've given him the stuff we owe him. Borges is one of the defendants who is fighting this tooth and nail all the way, which, you know, you can do that against the federal government when they charge you, but you better be in the right because the federal prosecutors are relentless when they've got you on, on criminal charges mm-hmm. and generally they win. Uh, it's going to be a long, hard road for him. So why are we going to have to wait till next year? I, I don't know. get it, man. I know. And yeah, it, prosecutors and the defense attorneys both told our reporter John Coniglia that the spring or summer would probably be too soon to start the trial based on various motions that are expected to be filed. And they estimated that the case could go in the fall or, or late late fall even. So and prosecutors have turned over more than 1.5 million records to the defense attorneys. And so that makes this case pretty complex. And they also say they they expect the trial to last about six weeks once it begins. So, yeah, we've been waiting 18 months. It's going to be another, I don't know, how many more? So we'll I see. bet this has more to do with the weather some of the other uncharged people who clearly are implicated in this bribery scheme are cooperating and they don't want to go to trial yet because they're planning to charge others and they want to get every cooperating witness on board so when they do go to trial they've got a lineup that can't be beat and we've been waiting for the other shoe to drop on some of these big charges for a while and have not been able to understand what the delay is Mm. so that might be a factor You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why does U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown think President Joe Biden will choose a centrist judge to fill the coming vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court when Biden's predecessor went in the opposite direction to pick the most right-wing nominees he could find? Lisa, I would think Biden would be trying to put a very left-leaning judge on the court to try and get some sort of balance, but Sherrod Brown doesn't think so. Yeah, uh, Sherrod Brown, well, he's... Sherrod Brown thinks that because of Biden's previous Federal Reserve nominees and other nominees is giving him hope for choosing a like a diverse, qualified candidate. But uh, it's interesting. A lot of names have come up. But what's happening is, is that President Biden vowed to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court during his campaign back in 2020. And it looks like uh, the Congressional Black Caucus is going to hold him to that promise. Uh, The caucus chair, Joyce Beatty, who's a Democrat out of Columbus, is confident that Biden will fulfill that promise. And actually watching the news last night, I think, you know, he's going to be pressured to do that. And there's already a list of eight black women that are on the short list or the alleged short list. Uh, Stephen Breyer has been on the court since 1994. He was a Bill Clinton appointee. He's the oldest man on the bench at 83 years old. And he's also not an originalist. He's opposed to originalism and he believes the Constitution is a living document. So I would assume that, uh, you know, Biden would want someone in that same vein on the court. But yeah, I don't know. Left leaning might go too far. I think he's looking for a centrist. Okay, it'll be it'll be interesting. A lot of people were immediately predicting that Mansion and someone else would stop this thing, but I, I I don't see that. I think when they get the nominee, unless there's some dirt in the background, that this will probably sail through. They they do have the majority there, right? And they they just we'll need a, yeah they just need a simple majority to pass. So yeah, I don't I just don't see this being that difficult. But but who knows? I mean, we're so polarized as a nation now. The Fox News loons will be, you know, raising all sorts of phony alarms about the candidate. And 
And then I'll get lots of email from people asking why we're not covering it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are the specific arguments being made to the Ohio Supreme Court about why the very latest legislative district maps just approved on Saturday are gerrymandered and should be thrown out? Laura, the first set was obviously gerrymandered. The second set seems to be gerrymandered. But what are the specific arguments they've thrown before the court? So this is the League of Women Voters, the Ohio Organizing Collaborative, and the local affiliate of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee that's filed these lawsuits in the first place. And they're basically arguing that the new maps failed to follow the guidance that justices gave when they ruled they were unconstitutional. They said they didn't didn't follow the instructions, which shocker, right? They they pointed to examples where Republicans could have drawn more proportionate districts, but instead made decisions to boost the Republicans. That included splitting up Hamilton County. It includes one Republican leading district and one Democratic district instead of making it so that it held two Democratic districts. And they're arguing that this imbalance of competitive districts, which we've talked about in the past, where even the Democratic ones are about 1%, whereas the Republican, the closest is 5%, that it's intended to favor Republicans and that they're not being fair. Statewide, 58% of the map districts are Republican-leaning, 42% are Democrat, but in places like Cleveland and Akron, a disproportionate numbers of those Democratic seats are toss-ups. I was, I was actually optimistic that the Republicans on the redistrict commission, not Cup and Huffman, who have done nothing but bad things, but Mike DeWine and Frank LaRose, Keith Faber, would say, okay, we got slapped. Let's do the right thing here. So I was pretty surprised when, when LaRose came out and peddled nonsense about why they had to go with these maps and, and again, put their fingers on the scale. I can't wait to see what the Supreme Court does with this. I guess we have until tomorrow for the other side to respond, right? For the- exactly. They have to file their stuff at noon on Friday. And they've argued that these are politically proportionate as possible while following the technical line drawing rules. But Andrew ha- Tobias, who wrote the story and has been doing great work following all the redistricting uh, kerfuffles this entire fall and into the winter, he did an interesting story looking at what it means for Cuyahoga and Summit counties where, you know, we talk about the unnecessary changes. These are specific. Solon's going to be split into two if these maps stand. Bride Rose Sweeney, he's the West Side Cleveland Democrat who's been seen as a possible future statewide candidate. Her pre- her precinct containing her house is carved out from a safely Democratic seat to a competitive one with Parma and Parma Heights that Trump nearly won. It's like they specifically targeted some Democrats. And Yeah, and- that that one when you look at the line it's just okay the only reason you did this was to cut her out i think the more the more damaging fact though is is that they created five seats that they label as democratic where it's less than one percent margin and there is no republican seat with less than a five percent margin that is cooking the books that if if you want to have less than a one percent margin which would be great to have competitive districts you can't just do it for one party that's sleazy that's underhanded it's sinister and that's what mike dewine keith faber and frank larose said they approve of sinister sleazy underhanded it'd be interesting to see what maureen o'connor does with this Right. And Mike DeWine, he had a national radio interview on Wednesday morning. He called the new maps constitutional. He said the court gave us some guidance. We believe we've come up and checked all the boxes and followed that guidance. So, I mean, 
you're right. I, I was not as optimistic as you on this, but you, you would think that the governor of Ohio, who wants support from all Ohioans, regardless of their party, would stick up for fairness. So, Layla and Laura, when you send your children to their room for quiet time after they misbehave, do you think of that as guidance? Because that's kind of what the Supreme <laughs> Court did to them. I don't think of it as guidance. I think it is a slap there upside the head. Very specific instructions from the Supreme Court. When you have the, you know, the chief justice basically saying this is so messed up we think we should get rid of this entire system but here's where you messed up <laughs> right. you, you think that they listen it's not really guidance it's a direct order it's today in ohio the filing deadline for congressional seats in ohio is next week and we have no maps for the districts after the supreme court of ohio tossed them so what are ohio's majority party republican leaders doing this week with these important election deadlines looming and no maps in sight. Layla? They're going to Florida. Can you even believe it? No, I mean, I my God. On, on Thursday and Friday, the caucus's political fundraising arm, the Ohio Senate Campaign Committee, is hosting events for big donors and lawmakers in Amelia Island, which is outside of Jacksonville. Cleveland.com obtained a copy of the invitation to these events. And it includes a VIP reception at 5 p.m. Thursday for people who donate $20,000 or $10,000 to the campaign committee. And then on Friday, the donors who gave $10,000 or $20,000 will play golf at the Oak Marsh Golf Course at the Omni uh, Amelia Island Resort. Let me get my monocle out. Oh. <laughs> and then the main event is 6 p.m. Friday, which is less expensive. It's $1,000, as little as $1,000 you can get access to this event. And, you know, this is Amelia Island is is considered one of the top 121 golf resorts and hotels, according to Condé Nast Traveler. It overlooks the Atlantic Ocean. So, you know, la-di-da. Meanwhile, the legislature has until February 13th to draw some maps that don't violate the Constitution. <laughs> so if they can't, the Ohio Redistricting Commission can try. But the deadline for congressional candidates to get on primary ballots is, is in early March. So, you know, among those who will be in Florida is Ohio Senate President Matt Huffman, who would lead the legislature in the redrawing of the map and is also a member of the Ohio Redistricting Commission. And mm. I just thought that his response to Laura Hancock's question about how he could possibly be blowing off to Florida when facing this deadline was so crazy. He said, I don't think one has anything to do with the other. The legislature isn't going to be considering a congressional map because we don't have one drawn. <laughs> I was like, what? This is so. like having your house burn half down. And instead of finding shelter for your family and saving whatever possessions you can, you get on a plane and go to Disney World. <laughs> just, their house is burning down. The whole state is in disarray. Candidates want to start to campaign for these offices. and They go to Florida. It's, it's a lovely area. I've been there, but that's not really where you should be when your house is burning down. It tells you everything about the scorn these leaders have for the people they're supposed to be serving. You know, Laura, that's what Laura Hancock mentioned that this isn't the first time that they all went to Florida when important matters were on the table. You know, in February 2020, the Republican senators went to Key West. And at the time, they were debating a bill that that changed the Ed Choice private school voucher program. And there was a public hearing scheduled for people to testify uh, on all sides of that debate. And they were in Florida. It's just... 
Mm. God. I love Laura Hancock's lead, how she said they were going to blow this. Blow this I know I laughed out loud. It was, that was so <laughs> hilarious. But it, it, it's clear that this is not happening in good faith. I mean, obviously, we just talked about the legislative redistricting. They're not planning to sit down and hash this out and come up with the most fair maps. They're trying to thwart the system as much as they can. So why do they have to be there? They're going to have their, their flunkies do it. Wouldn't it be great if we got back to the early part of the pandemic where you weren't allowed to travel between states if you're exposed to coronavirus and we never let them back in? Like, okay, stay in Florida. <laughs> we'll start over with a whole bunch of new guys. They can't do it any worse than you did. It's today in Ohio. Are Northeast Ohio's hospitality and service industries bouncing back faster than industries elsewhere in the nation? Or is that just spin by the people whose job it is to promote our hospitality and service industries? We reported earlier this week that the hotel occupancy was still way off in 2021. Lisa, how do we reconcile these statements? Well, to be fair, I mean, it's Destination Cleveland's job to be optimistic and, and, and you know, positive about things. But they do believe that uh, Cuyahoga County hospitality and service industries will bounce back faster than other communities. And they pointed out how they persevered despite COVID and labor shortages and supply chain issues at all. Um, David Gilbert, who's the CEO of Destination Cleveland, says there's momentum from big events, and he's not wrong. I mean, we're getting one of the biggest events, you know, of the year, the NBA All-Star Game, in just a couple of weeks. That's going to be about $100 million in economic impact. Also getting a big uh, cybersecurity job fair for women in March, and that's going to attract 900 students and a lot of employers to the area. So, yeah, I mean, they could be right, they could be wrong, but if we look at the hotel occupancy rates for Cleveland, the greater Cleveland area, last year we were at 52%, and that's below the national average of 58%. Let's just say 2020 was a wash for everybody, only 37% hotel occupancy then. But we had 61% hotel occupancy back in 2019, pre-pandemic. Interestingly enough, though, Joe Savarese with the Ohio Hotel and Lodging Association says, actually, hotels in suburban and rural areas and hotels near parks did much better than cities because the downtown hotel occupancy rate was only at 48% last year. So yeah, I mean, you, you, you got to give Destination Cleveland credit for being upbeat about it, whether it bears out or not, we don't know. But the momentum, I think, is there. Laura, you've been out at the ski mountain a lot, and you've found that to be incredibly crowded. Is that something that brings in people from outside the region, or do you find that's just local people? Yeah, I love that you called it a mountain. Um, <laughs> it's just locals. I mean, I, I think because, you know, if Holiday Valley and Peak and Peak are about two and a half or three hours away, if you're going to go from anywhere, you're going to go there. So it's it's a Northeast Ohio local spot. But it, I mean, those are hospitality workers. And I don't know how you can be this upbeat about hospitality industry when we still have all the staffing issues and we're not paying people enough. I mean, you've talked about there have been long lines there because they're having a hard time getting work. <laughs> they can't even open, you know, the full schedule that they normally have. I don't I don't even think their tubing hill is open yet, which is, you know, really fun for kids and families and a great thing to do during a pandemic winter. We did it last year, but they, they don't have enough people to run it. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. In response to the lakefront plan proposed by Browns owners D and Jimmy Haslam, Northeast Ohio's big planning agency is considering all sorts of alternatives for the lakefront. Laura, what are they? 
So NOACA wants the city to think bigger. They want them to add at least two new variations to these five proposals as they analyze in the formative stages of $5 million feasibility study. So NOACA has leeway here. They are overseeing the progress and process, and the city appears to be um, amenable to this idea. They began working on the study late last fall to test this concept that the Haslam's unveiled in May, and that would include extending the downtown mall over the shoreway and the railroad tracks to connect the city with the lake. That would require refiguring the, the shoreway somehow. There's four alternatives here on exactly how they would do that, plus a fifth, but basically says they would do nothing. So the NOACA concept goes back to an earlier idea from the Green Ribbon Coalition that kind of Rather than going straight down the mall, it kind of curves to the east a little bit, and it wouldn't require so much work on the shoreway. It would be wide, and it would still get you to the lake. So they just want them to be able to consider that scenario as well. Well, there will be opposition to the plan as it now stands because of what it does to the shoreway. All those west siders that use that road, and there are a lot of them, will be opposed to this plan, or a lot of them will, because they want their access. And so NOACA might be being thoughtful here and thinking, look, let's get rid of that opposition. Let's make sure we don't take away the West Side access and and get the job done. Does it say anything about closing Burke? No. <laughs> that hasn't been considered yet. But you know, you know that's going to end up to be part of the discussions. It's been out there so long. And Bibb has said, Justin Bibb has said he's open to the idea, right? Like he wasn't a closed down automatic no. So the Green Ribbon Coalition. Oh, no, 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 are... no, no. He's pretty much closed it down. That was the okay. first question I asked him when he announced he was running. I thought he wasn't as like anti as the Jackson administration. I thought there was no, a no, little he want, of... no, he said, close it, use it okay. for better things. So okay. he's on the record saying okay, sorry. is toast. Okay. Well, good. Then I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And the green ribbon coalition are the folks that are, I had the idea of moving I 90 actually further away from the lake to give us more lakefront access. So if they're still in the discussions, like I feel safe that we are not done talking about this. All right. It's good to see Noaka being thoughtful about the plan. I just we have to move it forward and we're waiting for Justin Bibb to come through with his big projects that he'll get behind. Hopefully this will be one of them. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio's biggest employer, the Cleveland Clinic, hosts an annual speech about the state of the healthcare giant. What did CEO Tom Mahalovic have to say in the latest State of the Clinic address, Lisa? 2021 was a blockbuster year for the Cleveland Clinic system. They had their best ever financial performance. They had over 10 million patient visits last year, a 17% increase in clinical activity. And their income of $746 million last year was up 6% over the year before. Although they don't know whether this is a pandemic anomaly and whether this, this you know, will it continue. So we'll see. But the Cleveland Clinic hospital system had the most COVID patients in Ohio. They also had a large number of non-COVID patients as well because people were delaying care. They weren't going to see their doctors. They couldn't get elective surgeries and so on and so forth. So they were seeing patients that were sicker and more complex, which means more hospital stays, more tests, more doctors, all kinds of things. So yeah, a lot of a lot of dollars coming into the Cleveland Clinic. And they also were very successful in their 10-year fundraiser, which just ended last year. They exceeded their goal and raised $2.6 billion. So yeah, a lot of good things to report. Also worker safety, because this is, and this is just 
kills me that healthcare workers now have targets on their backs. They used to be heroes. Now they're being yelled at by anti-vaxxers. They're being stalked, going to and from their jobs. Some are changing out of their scrubs before they leave the hospital. So the Cleveland Clinic is dedicated to the safety of their workers. They're going to add more police on their campuses. They're going to do more weapons screening, and then they're going to have a safe escort program for their workers. Well, dedicated to the safety of their workers, except they don't mandate vaccines. <laughs> well, they have to, to now, but yeah, right. It, it, there is a difference. And I mean, when you talk about how they were viewed as heroes in the beginning of the pandemic, when nobody could get vaccines, they were desperately trying to save people's lives who, who through no fault of their own, were, were sick, very sick. Now, what they're seeing, the people who are most sick are the anti-vaxxers. And the anti-vaxxers refuse to believe what the hospital tells them about what they need to do to get well. They just yell at them. So I, I can see what the difference is. You have a concentration of people in the hospitals now of who who oppose mm-hmm. science. And so, I mean, how many times have you read about somebody on, on their deathbed arguing against treatment and trying to get the worm medicine that I give my dog? It's been a strange one. It's really sad, though, that they're having to change out of scrubs before they leave, because I think the general population thinks of them as heroes. Layla, Hannah Drown has written two stories where she really drilled into anecdotes from from healthcare workers about what they're seeing and it was it was soul soul wrenching yeah of course yeah she did she did and and uh you know i've heard a lot of these stories uh firsthand as well i come from a family of of uh healthcare providers and my husband's a nurse uh whose you know unit at the cleveland clinic main campus was recently turned into a covid unit uh, at least partially and um and yeah you're absolutely right that it's the anti-vaxxers that are that are causing so much of the the you know this this grief and this awful uh, surge in the hospital system, but also some of those some of the healthcare providers themselves are anti-vaxxers, mm-hmm. and I, I it's so regrettable that that you know the hospital has has uh, rejected the idea of mandating the the vaccine for its its workforce because now they're dealing with these worker shortages and having to pay outside suppliers for you know to come in and staff it's it's. I wish we. I don't know how somebody goes through nursing school or medical school or any of the schools for people that are healthcare workers, and comes away as anti-science. I know. Right? Just, there's such a breakdown for me there. If you've sat through the education, you know how much these vaccines mean, and yet they're and then they I, get on social media and say, "I'm a healthcare worker, and I can tell you the vaccines don't work." Right. I also wonder how you can keep up the kind of profit margins if you're paying a lot of money to the traveling nurse associations that are placing people because you can't hire enough nurses because those are incredibly Mm -hmm. expensive i think you want to just keep your workers happy you're listening to today in ohio maybe the clinic is seeing a lot of patients because we're a bunch of couch potatoes in this state how poorly does ohio rank in a new measure of the states based on whether residents lead active lifestyles and layla this isn't loony science this is from the cdc right so ohio ranks 18th worst among us states and territories with more than a fourth of the adults that's 27% living sedentary lifestyles this is according to a recent cdc study and and compare that to the national average which is 25% so we're slightly worse than what we're seeing nationally among among eight midwestern states ohio ranked fourth for overall physical inactivity and overall the highest prevalence of inactivity in the united states and, and territories was puerto rico there at nearly 50 percent 
sedentary. And the state with the lowest prevalence of inactivity was Colorado with Mm -hmm. 17.7%. This was a study conducted between 2017 and 2020. The CDC had asked people if they did any physical activity or exercise, including gardening and walking. So the bar was kind of low. (laughs) (laughs) that this is, you know, outside of their regular job. And participants who said no were classified as inactive. The most sedentary region was the South, followed by the Midwest, then the East, then the West. Um, Though, really, they were all pretty similar. I mean, they were all within a couple percentage points of one another. It's, you know, I, I do wonder, though, it seems this data might be outdated, don't you think? I mean, given how much we've been through these past couple years since the study ended and how our lives have changed on account of it, how have our activity levels changed since the start of the pandemic? Some people have used the pandemic as a great reason to kind of refocus their energy on health and wellness and self-care, but others have kind of, you know, given into the stress and, and mm-hmm. gained weight and gotten unhealthy. So I, I would say that it sounds like they need to make another round of calls to their survey <laughs> respondents so, and see but, what's happened. So to be ranked as sedentary, you basically get up in the morning, you, you eat, you go to work, you come up at the end of the day, you sit down, you don't move again. That, that's basically, that's that's what you are. Because if you do anything, if you go out for a walk, if you take your dog for a walk, anything, you don't count as sedentary? Uh, you're asking the wrong person, but it sounds like that, that does, uh, that's it. I mean, if you... Yeah, gardening is a pretty well. Actually, I think gardening is pretty can be pretty strenuous. Very strenuous. <laughs> Depending right. on what you're doing. Try laying a bunch but, of mulch. Yeah, but I assume that like things like you know vacuuming your house or just doing basic chores don't count because those are you know even sedentary people do those those things. I actually thought that the numbers would be much higher because you know. America. (laughs) And I'm not surprised Ohio ranks where it does because we've never been viewed as a healthy state. You know, it's the Colorados and places like that that always rank really high or some of the New England states. I just I'm I'm tripping over what the definition is of being sedentary. I mean, it's almost would, would be a better read if you ask people you know, do you get exercise three days a week and then and then start looking? Because that I think it will be a much higher percentage who do not. But it's it's much more concrete than. But but don't you think the pandemic has dramatically changed people's lifestyles for the better or worse? I mean, I I would like to know what what the outcome is of of these past couple of years and on people's you know, lifestyles. My my own anecdotal experience, you know, leading a newsroom is that it has not been for the better. I think, I think the anxiety, Mm -hmm. you know, I was talking about this this morning, you know, we're coming up on two years. And if I would have said it to you in 2019, that you're going to come to a point where we're all locked in our houses and we don't see people much and we don't go out anywhere for two years, you you would have thought it's like on heroin. I mean, Uh. it's just not something that would have been in any way believable and yet we're coming up on two years of it right. now and yeah. i think the stress of it has just crushed a lot of people I, I i still am optimistic i mean we've talked about this and a lot of experts are getting on the bandwagon saying this is it the omicron was so virulent that it's the flame out all these people now have immunity and it's going to be much harder for the next variant to land and so we're, we may come out of this as, as the weather know. warms up and we get into March, we could be finally free of the overwhelming uh, pain of what this has I mean, done. But, but I don't think a whole lot more people are getting exercise now than were before. Do you? I, we know some people. 
I see a I'm lot not more one walkers of them. in my neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. No, during the pandemic, I saw so many more people walking in my neighborhood than I ever did. And they're still out there despite the non-shoveled sidewalks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll leave it there. It's today in Ohio. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. We'll be back Friday, Friday to wrap up a week of the news. <laughs> <laughs>